Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome back, beautiful mamas. Today's podcast is one of those interviews that I felt so privileged to be able to bring to you. Melanie Dimmitt is a spectacular mama who has been through what many of us would consider the scariest thing possible. A birth that ended up with a child with profound disabilities. What she has been through over the last three and a half years is not only phenomenal, but how she dealt with it is something very close to my own heart. When she couldn't make sense of what was happening, as a journalist and a writer, she went out to find the answers. She went to speak to parents who had been through similar things, asking them, how did you feel? Will this ever feel normal? What should I do? What is our future like? And in that process of seeking those answers, she found her own, her own answers to what this all means. And of course, uncovered a strength and a joy in her life she never thought possible. This was one of those interviews I found hard to get through without tears. It is a very, very beautiful reminder of what motherhood really teaches us. And it is my great pleasure to share it with you today. This is the Happy Mama Movement, a weekly podcast dedicated to changing the conversation about what it means to be a mother and a woman in this day and age. I'm Amy Taylor Cabaz author, mama, and former journalist. After spending 15 years chasing news and burning myself out trying to be superwoman, I realized that I was chasing a dream that no longer served me, and since then have dedicated myself to understanding the transition that we go through as women when our whole identity shifts with motherhood. Every week, I will bring you the very best insights and inspiration I can find to help us all change the way we feel about this time in our lives and create a movement that allows us to honour motherhood differently. 
Melanie, thank you so much for joining the Happy Mama Movement podcast. Thanks for having me, Amy. You and I met a long time ago in what probably feels like a different life now as freelance writers at a magazine. And I remember your beautiful energy and personality back then. And so when I was contacted about this book, I was floored. I thought, oh, that beautiful woman, I remember her. And wow, what a journey she's been through. Because as I began to read this book and and just my heart was with you as you went through everything that you've been through with your beautiful son. Uh, I just had to bring you on the podcast. It's such a phenomenal story of strength and what motherhood is really about. So first of all, I just wanted to say thank you and and wow, what a what a what an experience you've been through. But thank you for putting all of it into words for us as well. Oh, you do what you've got to do. <laughs> you did the same with your book, as we were saying before. Um, yeah, it was my my saviour, this book. So, no, um, thank you so much for having me on and for sharing it with your beautiful community. I really appreciate it. Oh, they're going to get so much out of it. So let's, let's go back to the beginning. Let's talk about uh, the pregnancy of your first baby, Arlo, and uh, how you were feeling going into motherhood. What were your expectations of it? Well, luckily, I didn't have many expectations. My partner, Ro, and I were sort of like, oh, if we can have a baby, cool. If not, I think we'll be all right. Um, so we were pretty casual about it. And uh, so we just moved to Sydney. I just started working full time at the magazine where we met. Um, and yeah, we shift off to Europe for a little getaway, got engaged in Paris, very cliche, mm-hmm. and got pregnant about two seconds later. And we were shocked, but we were excited. And yeah, like I said, not many expectations, but we did expect it, you know, the baby to come out like it looks on the box sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the pregnancy wasn't great. I was bleeding a bit at the start. So the GP thought we might be miscarrying. So that was a bit touch and go, but he hung in there and then I think at our 20-week scan, they saw that uh, he had a hole in his heart. So we were really closely monitored for that. So a cardio- cardiologist a few times. And we thought that was going to be our challenge with Arlo. You know, he might have to have a little surgery when he was born. So we were a bit freaked out about that and probably didn't enjoy the pregnancy all that much. Uh, we also got a slightly higher chance of him having Down syndrome in those tests that they do it. 12 weeks. So Ro and I didn't really talk about that together. Um, but we were both thinking that maybe that would be what was going on because babies having a hole in their heart can be a sign of Down syndrome as well. So it's interesting. We did kind of have these thoughts in the back of our head, but anyway, we, um, got through, it was four days past Arlo's due date. So I was very pregnant, very over it. And all of a sudden, I sort of realized he wasn't moving the same way as he usually would. His movements were a bit less. And you know how they always tell you, come into the hospital if you think the baby's moving a bit differently. So we went in, they had a look at him and they said, oh, he looks all right to us. But because you're sort of four days over your due date, um, we'll induce you. So they got me in the birthing suite all connected up to a fetal heart monitor And we were just waiting. My waters were about to be broken. I was about to be induced. And Ro and I were watching the heart monitor 
as it sort of fluctuated a little bit, like making a game of it, like, oh, high score. And then suddenly it just dropped really drastically. Um, so Rogue called a nurse in and she got quite alarmed and got the stethoscope out and was sort of racing around my belly trying to find a heartbeat and then couldn't find anything. Um, so the emergency button was pressed. All of these doctors flooded the room. And within minutes, I was being sort of rushed down the corridor to theatre. I was put under and Arlo was born by emergency caesarean in about 10 minutes, which is amazing. Um, so the next thing I knew was I woke up and was wheeled into what I now know was the NICU and Arlo was placed on my shoulder, this beautiful little boy with these navy blue eyes that stared right into my eyes. So for me, I guess it wasn't all that traumatic. I didn't actually have to be there for the birth and I'm lucky that uh, my dad's a doctor. So my brother and I kind of grew up in hospitals. I'm quite used to the environment. I always feel very safe in hospitals. So I sort of felt like they'll take care of this. We'll be all right. Poor Ro, on the other hand, was left in the room by himself while we got wheeled off. And um, he was put in scrubs and told he could come in for the procedure. But then he sort of got to the door, saw like a horror scene of my stomach open in the room and was then told he couldn't come in and was put in a room by himself again. So poor Ro is a bit sort of traumatized by the birth. And he saw Arlo right when Arlo was born and Arlo was quite distressed and needed help with breathing. So Rory kind of really got the horror story part of the birth, whereas I got to sleep on through all of that. <laughs> so I was wow. quite lucky in that sense. Yeah. <laughs> and so when you woke up and they put this beautiful navy blue eyed baby on your chest, what were your thoughts? Did you, uh, were you aware of, of what was happening? Oh, it's interesting because yeah, when I sort of came to, the surgeon was up in my face and uh, my first question was, is he dead? And they were like, oh, no, no. And then my second question was, does he have Down syndrome? And the surgeon was like, oh, what? No. So I sort of thought, oh, we've done it. We're, you know, we're through this. Everything will be fine. I was so fixated on Down syndrome being a possibility. And the surgeon must have known, you know, that there was no way that Arlo was getting out of this scot-free. You know, he was without proper oxygen for 10 minutes. Um, yeah, but I just sort of thought, sweet, we're good. Mm-hmm. Um, it was pretty full on though. Like Arlo needed to be cooled down for 72 hours and he was in the NICU. So we couldn't hold him for three days, which was really hard. Um, I was recovering from the cesarean in a different ward on a different floor to where Arlo was. So Rose spent the week sort of running up and down between our two rooms, sort of getting video of Arlo and showing me up in my bed as I recovered. But Honestly, I think just like I said, because I'm so comfortable in hospitals and all the nurses were wonderful with Arlo and, you know, I was able to sleep and recover and I didn't really have to look after my baby. I could just go and visit him and our family were around and all supportive. It was, you know, it was quite a nice kind of fuzzy time for Mm. me and the doctors were, you know, checking in on him and they did an MRI and it showed that there was damage to his brain. And they said, well, look, we'll just sort of need to see what happens. He looked good. Like you can't really tell at the start. He looked like any other baby. He fed, he breastfed really well, which in hindsight is miraculous. Um, So they did, you know, they did even mention cerebral palsy as an option, but I just wasn't hearing it because, you know, so far in my life, everything had been okay. Things had happened, but it had always been okay. And I've family is all saying it will be fine. He'll be okay. It was just completely unfathomable to me that anything would be wrong. 
So it came as a bit of a shock when he, yeah, didn't meet his milestones and it became clear that, yeah, something wasn't going quite right here. So this is such an enormous story and there's so many things that I want to hear from you and and parts of the story that I think are really important but I'm really conscious of 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 our time and and bringing the most I guess the key points to light so without disrespecting anything any of those little steps that you had to take along the way can you take us to when that uh that belief that this was all going to be okay. Everything in my life has always turned out okay in the end. I trust everybody and everything's going to be okay. When that cracked, can you take us to how that began and what that meant for you as a sense of yourself? Yes. Well, it cracked gradually. We were very Mm. lucky that this was our first baby. Ro and I did not have much experience with babies. Now that we've had a second, I think I would have been able to tell pretty early on that yeah, something was going on. And we, you know, we kept having to check in with the hospital. They tracked his progress and the physio that we saw would suggest that we go and check in with the cerebral palsy alliance. And we were just like, oh, no way. No, no, that's not for us. We'll be fine. Um, so we were full on in very comfy denial for quite a long time. And it wasn't until when Arlo was six months and a pediatrician officially diagnosed him with cerebral palsy that we really realized that oh my goodness like this is happening but even then you know there are so many stories you can cling to everyone tells you or boys develop a lot slower than girls and I knew a child that didn't walk till they were three there's always some story that you can kind of cling to to stay in denial as long as possible do they help because how do you balance this hope that things might turn out okay with the acceptance of the now? Because those stories, in a way, give you hope. But as you said, they also keep you knee-deep in denial at times. So how do you navigate that? Look, I think so long as you're doing the right things by your child, I think so long as you start early intervention and the therapies that they need. So when we got the diagnosis, the pediatrician was so kind and did it really casually. He sort of said, oh, look, I'm just going to give you this so you can start the therapies and get the funding. And it seemed like he was doing it as kind of a courtesy, whereas he would have full well known the severity Mm. that we were dealing with here, but he was really light touch with us. We were lucky. And yeah, we found Arlo a fantastic physio, OT, speech therapist. So we had all that taken care of. And I think because we were doing those things, it was okay to, you know, cling to these stories and you've, you've got to be hopeful. There's always hope. I think hope is extremely important um, throughout this whole process. And, you know, milestones don't get met, but by the time you get there, you're sort of more prepared for it. So it's not as dire as you think. Like if you told me when Arlo was one, you know, he'll be three and a half and not walking, not talking, I would have been absolutely horrified and mm. that would have been terrible. But now that's our reality and we're good you know I was beautiful we're happy he's happy when he's well you know it's not a nightmare by any stretch you know we have a really good happy life so I think once you're there it's not what you think it's going to be and you don't feel the way about it that you thought you might have and now that I've realized that I sort of can you know not worry too much about the future like I was doing at the start because that's what you really did with this book that you've you've pulled together in amongst 
all that you've been through and a second baby as well, this spectacular book called Special, you were really trying to uh, provide a resource that you couldn't find. Can you tell us the, the, I want to say the dark times, but that doesn't really Oh, they were dark. <laughs> oh, <good>. dark. <laughs> I wanted to sort of not bring it down too much, but I mean, in the sense of acknowledge that, of course, they were dark, but there were also moments of great light in there too. But share with us, you know, those times. Yeah, well, I was just desperate. I really just wanted someone to tell me that it would be okay and that this wouldn't be what I thought it was going to be. And other therapists and people were encouraging me to meet other parents raising kids with disabilities, but that was the last thing I wanted to do. I felt like that would be admitting that I had something in common with these people. And I think that would have taken a level of acceptance that I just did not have at that point in time. Mm. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll cheat. I'll say I'm writing this book so I can reach out to parents that talk to them in you know, a really one-sided style of an interview and just take what I need from them and sort of scurry away and not have to share too much of what I was going through. So I reached out to, yeah, 50-odd parents all around the world raising kids with different disabilities. And I just said, help me. What on earth did you do at the start of this thing to feel better? Like, what did you read? What did you do? What did you eat? What did you drink? Who did you talk to? Like, what helped you at the start? How did you get through? And how do you feel now with hindsight? Are you happy? When will I be happy? When will this stop feeling so terrible and scary? And these parents just poured out all of this advice and these amazing insights and their stories. And that's what special is. It's just, you know, a big mishmash of all this advice and this sort of similar themes would come up from each of the conversations. You know, most parents in these scenarios, they deal with the why me's and the unmet expectations and that this is completely unfair, you know, at the start. And then you've moved through all the emotions you have grief, but you feel not great about calling it grief because obviously a child isn't dead, but it is a different kind of grief because it's the loss of you know your dreams and your hopes around your child and around what parenthood, you know, around how you thought that was going to play out. And it's not all negative. Like they spoke so much about joy and about hope and how their perspective had changed and how they had grown and how their family had just become closer. So, you know, there's a lot of beautiful stuff in there too. It's yeah, there's, it's not black and white. Um, yeah. So they just gave me all of this advice across these themes that kept coming up and those themes formed the sections of the book and the chapters. And all of a sudden I was like, Oh, there's actually something here. This book I was kind of half pretending to write just to talk to other parents could actually be a book. <laughs> it sounds so similar to how I started with all of this too. <laughs> yeah. Right. Makes me laugh. It's that journalist mind kicks in. Well, come on, someone's got to have an answer. So I've just got to go and find it. I love it. And Blue. what you discover in the process and the book is so beautiful to read because of these stories and insights from these beautiful parents that shared their stories stories with you. Can I hone in on one of the themes? Because I think that many of the mamas that listen to this, whether it's a, a disability, a, a learning difficulty, um, anything that goes completely against the expectations that we had for our children and our life as a parent, it begins with that why me, why us, why them. Could you share what you learned about that part of 
of the process because it is a process we have to move through, isn't it? And so what, what would you say to someone who's in that very first feeling of why me, why us, why this? Yeah, firstly, that's such a natural reaction. We are designed to have that reaction when something happens to us that we weren't expecting. Our brain just scrambles to find, you know, a logical explanation. So, God, it's so normal to be feeling that way. It is kind of pointless though. So I guess my advice would be, you know, wallow in it as much as you need to, but there are ways to kind of turn that thinking around in a really great way that uh, one parent told me was to turn the actual sentence around and say, well, why not me? You know, we were so lucky we live in Australia. The NDIS has just rolled out, which means that, you know, kids with disabilities are getting a lot more financial support than they would have had before, you know, most of us or most of the parents I spoke to certainly are lucky and in loving families, loving homes. Like, why not me? You know, like we, you know, we can do this. Um, and yeah, I guess just maybe also turn around the why me into what now? You know, how can I do something proactive? What can I do today to feel better or, you know, to do something good for my child? So turn it around that way as well. I love that why not me. I really, really do. I've thought about that. It really turns it from being a victim to an empowerment thing, to realising that actually maybe there's a role for you here. Maybe there's something here for you to do with this. It just, and I can understand that you couldn't get to that point too quickly. And I like that you said you're allowed to wallow in it for as long as you need to. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. It still emerges three and a half years later. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but then eventually to switch it and find that there's an empowerment place in here. I think that's really, really powerful. Thank you. Great. <laughs> Glad you think so. <laughs> so this podcast is really about us as women, as we mother because we talk a lot about parenting and the expectations of our children and our role as mother, but what about us as women and what happens to us? You've obviously been through an exceptional transformation in who you are, what you see for yourself, probably reassessing every single goal you've ever set, really looking at what you want your life to be about. How has that been? Well, I was fortunate, I guess, in that I could keep working. I went back to the magazine, you know, after I had Arlo right before he got the diagnosis. And then when he did get the diagnosis, I went freelance so I could take him to all of his appointments. Um, But luckily the mag sort of kept me on, gave me a lot of work. I could stay really busy. And because I could keep that part of my identity, that helped so much. You know, my whole life wasn't about parenting and Arlo and Arlo's appointments and researching and worrying about the future. So writing has always been such a beautiful distraction for me in that way. And then, you know, taking on a book, like, my God, an impossible project. Like, I think I almost did that as well, just because I knew it would be a huge distraction from what was going on, but also a healthy one that I knew would be helpful to me and Arlo. That's yeah. right, because it's about not losing yourself completely into this diagnosis, I would imagine. Absolutely. And look, it's hard. I'm in a very unique position where my partner, Ro, always, um, he also works in the media. So his shifts are always in the afternoon and evening. So I tend to write in the morning. He takes the kids out, goes to the appointments in the morning, and then we swap. 
So we're always either sole parenting or working, but it means that we can both work and I am not doing all of the appointments and all of the parenting. A lot of the mothers I spoke to, they're the primary carer and it's always them, you know, at the physio, at the therapies, filling in the forms, talking to the doctors. And there's big challenges that come up there, especially with, you know, parents staying on the same page, being somewhere at the same point in the process of, you know, processing all of this. So I've been so lucky in, you know, the fact that Ro and I have kind of always been on the same page. We are very 50-50 in how we parent. We're both very aware of what's going on with Arlo's appointments and what Odie's up to. So I've had very fortunate conditions for this and I, I realise how lucky I am in that. Mm. And what about not tipping into overwhelm and burnout then because to keep your work going, to write a book, to then have another baby, which we haven't even spoken about, that must have been, <laughs> oh, that did that take, I want to say that must have taken courage, but actually that's a total assumption I've just made. How did you feel going into another baby? Oh, we were so scared. We had to make that decision quickly because when they took Arlo out, um, they checked my ovaries as they do with emergency cesareans. And one of them had a cyst on it that ended up being early stage cancer. So I had to go back in six weeks after Arlo was born. They took that ovary out and they need to take the other one out pretty soon. So my oncologist said to me, you need to complete your family. Oh my gosh. We would never have had another baby that quickly, but we had to. And we were so lucky that, you know, we did get pregnant again um, quickly. And, but it was not a pleasant experience. You know, we got um, the high risk treatment, even though there was no reason to think this would happen again. It was really, you know, a random incident and no one could explain why. Um, because of what happened, we did get the high risk treatment. So we were in there getting so many scans. There were so many opportunities to be told that something wasn't going right. You know, the doctors were convinced at one stage that her head was growing too fast for her body. They thought she had a hole in her heart. So it was not pleasant. It was horrible. We were so scared. Um, but it was all okay. We had Odie through a very civilized, uh, planned cesarean two weeks before her due date. And she's beautiful, medically boring. I'll endorse <laughs> her. It's very weird not having, you know, she has no appointment. She has her vaccinations and that's it. It's so like, I forget what her birthday is all the time. Cause I'm not writing it a million times on all these forms like I was with Arlo. Wow. Um, but yeah, I would not recommend writing a book at the time that I did. It's been really stressful and I have been burnt out and I'm probably not the best person to give advice as to how not to burn out because it's been Full on, like I said, you know, Ro and I both work, both parent. We're in a tiny little house that we've outgrown, but we love where we live, so we're sticking it out. But um, it's there's <laughs> a lot of things that we probably need to upgrade in our lives, and I wish we had more time, you know, to chill out and more time together as a family. But yeah, it's a very, very busy season for us at the moment. It has been, yeah, for the past few years. That's right, for the past four years almost. Yeah. But you yourself, you're, you're finding who you are now as a mother of this beautiful boy and, of course, your daughter. You're, you're discovering who this new woman is. And, yes, it's busy and it's probably more busy than you want it to be. But do you feel like you're 
emerging and, and finding a new sense of yourself that's going to be completely different than who you thought it would be. But, you know, you're, you're figuring this out, all of you together. Totally. And I mean, I think parenting, regardless of what the scenario is, I, of course, it's going to change you. Like I've realized that I have, you know, this strength that I had no idea was there. And yes, it's hard, but my God, it's also awesome. And there are so many beautiful little moments in the day where, you know, you see Odie and Arlo smiling at each other and you're like, oh, this is so worth it. It is so worth it. Um, despite being incredibly hard and tiring and yeah, full on. And no, it's really, it's pushed me in a lot of good ways. And, you know, I didn't really think I could write a book and there you go. It, it happened. And yeah, I've surprised myself and it's really, you know, brought us together and made us so strong as, as a family unit as well. And so for anyone who's listening, who's going through their own massive upheaval, whatever that is, what would you say to her? Oh, just to sit in it. Don't try and, you know, fix it. Don't try and make it okay straight away. I think you just really need to sit in it, feel the feels, do whatever you need to do at the time, try and get a bit of time to yourself, even if it's just a few minutes, grab a tea, have a bath, like really just do what you need to do in that moment, feel what you need to feel. And just know that, you know, certainly in my experience, I thought it was the end of the world. Like having a child with profound disabilities was my worst nightmare. I never would have had children if I knew that was going to be the outcome. And I look back now and I just think, oh, that girl was such a fool. Like she had no idea like what she would have been missing out on. I feel entirely differently now, but it has taken 50 plus parents and a few years to get there. So just, it will feel differently. You will feel differently about this in time, but take your time. There's no need to rush, you know, the holy grail of acceptance or feeling okay. Just one foot in front of the other, one day at a time, minute by minute. Oh, you actually brought tears to my eyes when you were saying oh, <laughs> who you were before and that if you'd known that this is what parenting would be, you never would have done it. And But to see the joy in it now, my goodness, that's just the most beautiful message. Thank you. Yeah, but also just the ordinary. Yeah, it is. It's joyful. It's amazing. But it feels so normal now as yes. well. It's funny how you get your new normal. It's, it feels very ordinary a lot of the time, despite yes. the fact we've got quite an extraordinary situation here. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's an amazing thing. Our ability to adapt and find a new normal and thrive in that new normal, isn't it? It's amazing what yeah. we're capable of. Absolutely. And it's not just like a consolation prize. It's not just like, oh, I'm happy with what I've got sort of oh, thing. Oh, yes. I genuinely feel great. And I, I honestly feel that I'm a happier, you know, more balanced person. I know what's important now. I didn't know that before. I worried about some really petty, stupid stuff, which I still do. But I think, you know, motherhood and certainly my special form of motherhood has really changed my perspective on life and the things that are important and where happiness can be found like I've learned now you can only be happy in the moment you know happiness is not attached to some future outcome you can only be happy if you're enjoying you know what's going on in front of you enjoying the beautiful child that's in front of you oh my goodness beautiful message thank you so much for writing this book and for this podcast and yes 
my absolute admiration to you. I'm so grateful that you've shared this. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Amy. Thanks so much for the lovely chat. There's not much more I can say about this beautiful interview, mamas. As you heard, Melanie has a spectacular insight into how we navigate the unexpected as mothers, how we need to give ourselves time, time to move through whatever we need to move through to get to a place of acceptance and that acceptance to never feel like a consolation prize but instead to feel like the greatest gift. Please pick up a copy of Special and hand it around to any of your girlfriends and mama friends that might need it. Thank you for sharing this journey with me and with each other. It is a great honour to be here with you. Until next week, Satnam.